Today's scripture comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his eyes hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray together. And Father, now as we come before you on this day, the Lord's day that you have given to us, your people, we ask that now we would fulfill the purpose to which you have given it to us, that we would rest in you, that we would rest in the good news of the gospel, that we would rest in the identity that you have given to us through your son Jesus, that we would rest in the eternal hope that we have, that we would rest in the confidence that we will always be your beloved, that we would rest in knowing that no matter how much we have fallen, no matter how much we have failed, no matter how much we have been unfaithful, you will always be our God and you will always welcome us as your beloved children. Jesus, we ask now that as you continue to minister on our behalf as our great high priest, that you would once again remind us of the joy that we have because of the work that you secured on our behalf to be our great substitute, to be our mediator, to be our redeemer, to be our friend. Holy Spirit, would you banish whatever distracting thoughts that we may have rummaging in our minds or boiling within our hearts. Help us to have attentive ears, open minds, and receptive hearts so that we could learn from your word. Make the word come alive today, Holy Spirit, and we ask that we would be changed through it by the work that you do. We ask that you would now bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, studies tell us that there is a growing number of people today who do not believe in God. In this city, in this country, in this world, there is a growing percentage of people who claim that there is no God, they don't believe in God, and they never will believe in a God. And if you think about it, it is strange because other studies tell us that there's also an equally growing number of people who do claim to believe in God. As much as there are people saying there is no God, there's also a growing number of people who do say there is a God. We are witnessing today a growing disparity, a cultural divide where you have two opposing groups of people, one that says there is no God, the other that says there is a God, growing in parallel with one another to where it's creating a schizophrenic society. And one of the ways that we see this kind of division and schizophrenia is in the way that our culture measures different media things. For example, one year you'll have a New York Times bestselling book like The Purpose Driven Life or The Reasons for God hitting the New York Times bestseller. Then the following year, 
That same, very same New York Times bestselling list, you'll see books like God is Not Great or The God Delusion also hitting the New York Times bestselling books. And if you ever read any of these atheist books that are coming out by the droves, you'll notice that what they're saying really is nothing new. Because if you boil down the essential message of what all these books on atheism and agnosticism is saying, basically goes like this. If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God of the Bible could not exist. That right there is the essential message that we see over and over amongst a growing population of people who claim there is no God. Now, in some ways, this kind of reasoning makes absolute sense. It does. Because if you can't see God, if God is invisible, as Scripture says and as people do say then the only thing that you can turn to as evidence for God's goodness or against God's goodness, for God's existence or against God's existence, is the things that we see around us by the visible observations that we see going on in this world. And the more that we tend to pay attention with what's going on in this world, we tend to see a lot of evil, don't we? We see a lot of atrocities. We see a lot of brokenness everywhere. We see things like raging homelessness, random violence, sex slavery, tsunamis, to where it seems like if there is a God, he either doesn't care or simply he doesn't exist. You know, one of the questions that a lot of people ask after tragedy strikes is always that question of where is God, right? Isn't that what people were asking right after the 9-11 tax happened? You know, I remember one magazine simply had the question on its cover, where was God on September? September 11th. Now, here's the question. Why do people always bring this issue up, this specific issue of God's existence in the midst of sorrow, tragedy, and evil? Because we all know in our instincts that the idea of a good, powerful, loving God in conjunction with the existence of senseless evil, unjustified atrocities, just don't mix, right? It's an oxymoron. These two things should not be in existence in parallel together in the same reality. And so it seems that a lot of atheists are justified in saying, look, because there is such atrocious evil, because there is such evil going on in the world every day, the only reasonable conclusion that we can get from it is there is no God. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is, as followers of Jesus, as people who tenaciously believe that God does exist and he's good, he's all-powerful and all-knowing, how do we cling to that belief? In the midst of a world that seems like it's just falling apart. A world that seems like it's becoming hell itself. Well, that's the question that I want to answer in today's message as we finally finish the sermon series entitled METS, which means Members Equipped to Serve. And the purpose of this series was to look at the five crucial ministries that God calls every Christian to serve as his ministers. You see, the Bible tells us that it's not only professional pastors like myself and Pastor James who are called to do ministry. No, the Bible says every Christian who is a follower of Jesus is a minister of God. Right? And the fifth ministry that God calls every Christian to serve as his minister is our ministry to the poor. And we're going to talk about this fifth category of ministry to the poor, but we're going to talk about it in the context of how that ministry to the poor, how it can help us resolve this tension between the problem of evil in the presence of God. Okay? We're going to talk about how the idea of serving the poor, ministering to the poor, how that can help alleviate this tension, this problem known as evil, 
in light of the fact that we firmly believe in the existence of God. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you today from this passage in Isaiah chapter 11. First, I want to talk about the visible absence of humanity. The visible absence of humanity. Then I want to talk about the visible hints of brokenness. The visible hints of brokenness. And finally, I want to end it with the visible reason for hope. The visible absence of humanity, the visible hints of brokenness, and the final visible reason for hope. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the visible absence of humanity. Now, in order to understand this passage in Isaiah 11, I have to do a little bit of historical background of the Bible, okay? So please try not to fall asleep as I give you a brief Bible history lesson, okay? Israel, the nation of Israel, during this time when Isaiah is writing these words, was going through a season of huge economic prosperity. There was a lot of money coming into the nation of Israel, which meant there was a growing wealthy class of Israelites living in extravagant luxury. There was a time of incredible economic prosperity, and it was during this time, and there was a growing population of very wealthy, very rich, very aristocratic group of Israelites emerging from society, a type of luxury that hasn't been experienced in quite a while. But one of the consequences that came from this extravagance that was emerging within the wealthy class was a growing problem of greed bribery, and oppression to the poor. Listen to what Isaiah says in his first chapter of this book, Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 21. It says this, See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. From these verses, we see that instead of people who were growing in wealth, using that wealth to help alleviate the sufferings of the poor, were instead hoarding that wealth to themselves, to where instead of using these resources of prosperity and, and fortune to help others who are suffering, who are less fortunate, they were hoarding it to themselves, even to the point of even taking advantage of it at the expense of the poor. As much as this was a time of prosperity during Israel's time, it was also a time of deep depravity. Because even though people were getting rich, some of them were, many of them were getting rich through bribery, through prostitution, through robbing the poor, even murdering the poor. There was no justice system in this place. Government officials were all on the take, and hundreds of thousands of millions of Israelites were being oppressed. They were being neglected. Many of them were being killed unjustly. Now, if you were a decent living Israelite during this time, you see all this atrocity, you see all this injustice, you see all this corruption everywhere where innocent people are being oppressed, where the poor are being mistreated, you would probably be tempted to think Yahweh doesn't exist. The God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, he's not real. The God of the Bible who claims he's a defender of the weak, the defender of the poor, he's not true. That is what you would be tempted to think. And the question is, is there another possible reasonable explanation that you can come to aside from that conclusion? Well, Isaiah says, yes, there is. Listen to what he says, starting in verse 1. He says this, quote, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to is this interesting phrase that he says in verse 1, the stump of Jesse. Now, what the heck is the stump of Jesse? Well, actually, a better question to ask is, who is the stump of Jesse? Who is the stump of Jesse? You may not realize this, but this is actually a very unflattering reference to King David. King David. 
Now, we're going to talk about King David in just a moment, but for now, I just want you to focus on that one singular word, stump. Stump. I want you to focus on that word stump because that word has profound theological meaning. Let me explain what I mean. In the Bible, trees represented life. In the Bible, you see this imagery of a tree over and over that represents life. And if you think about it, that makes total sense. Because if you think about what a tree does, doesn't a tree provide life? From all practical standpoints, we get oxygen from trees. We get food from trees. We get shelter from trees, right? The Bible teaches us that trees literally give us the sources that we need for life. But not only that, Scripture goes on to say that trees not only physically or practically give us the resources we need for life, but trees in many ways symbolize our relationship with God, specifically a relationship of love and fellowship with God. It's no coincidence that the source of life in the book of Genesis is what? It's a tree, right? It's called the tree of life. Trees are the most pervasive symbols that the Bible uses to symbolize God's relationship with man because what better object could God point to to illustrate how he treats us, how he is towards us? Think about it. A tree doesn't eat its own fruit. A tree doesn't breathe in its own oxygen. A tree doesn't shelter itself with its own branches. A tree by its very nature is selfless. It's always giving. It's always seeking to provide life and the flourishing for other people. And when you understand this, you begin to understand what Isaiah is getting at with this reference of a stump. Because what is a stump? A stump is the only thing that remains after a tree has been cut down. A stump cannot provide fruit. A stump cannot provide oxygen. A stump cannot provide shelter. In other words, a stump is a useless tree. Now, what are we to make of all this? If anything, it's this. The visible image of a stump explains why the world is full of suffering and tragedy and why there is so much injustice in the world to where the poor are oppressed. And it's not because God doesn't exist. It's because human beings don't exist. In other words, the pointless evil and tragedy that we see in the world isn't proof that God doesn't exist. It's actually proof that human beings don't exist. Now you're like, what the heck is Pastor John saying? What, what are we here? <laughs> Who are we? What are we sitting in these pews? Are we not human beings? Are you saying that human beings literally, what are we, Pastor John? Let me explain what I mean. When I say human beings don't exist, what I'm really saying is that people, including all of us in here, do not live the way that we were created to live. That's what I'm saying. Just like a tree, when it's a stump, does not function the way a tree was created to function, so also, so many of us are like a stump in terms of us not living out the way God created us to live out our lives. Because the Bible says that we are created, what? In the image of God. Do you know what that means? It means when God created us, he created you to be like him. He created you to think like him, to behave like him, to act like him, which includes how we treat other people. If the Bible says that God is like a flourishing tree where he's always giving, he's always generous, he's always protecting, he's always providing and sheltering, that also means as image bearers of him, we are to be treating other people the same way that we treat, that he treats us, right? If God is like a magnificent tree towards us, we are to be like magnificent trees towards other people. But instead of being generous as God is, We're greedy and stingy. Instead of giving, we take and steal. Instead of protecting and sheltering, we ignore the cries of those who are exposed to the elements, right? We don't lift a hand. We don't lift a finger when it comes to the needs of the poor. 
See, the problem with all these atheists using this argument of, look at all that pointless evil, look at all that atrocity, isn't that proof that God does not exist? Isaiah would say, no. All that atrocity, all that evil that exists in the world is proof that human beings don't exist. The human beings that God created us to be. You see, the existence of evil, the existence of injustice is not evidence that God is not doing his job as God. It is evidence that human beings are not doing our job as human beings. That is what Isaiah is saying. The reason why there is evil and atrocity and suffering in this world is not because God is being unfaithful to his task as God. It's because we instead are being unfaithful to the task of being human as human beings. There is something incredibly off. There is something incredibly wrong to where human beings are now dysfunctional to where it causes all the brokenness, all the atrocities that are out there in this world. And so the question is, what is it about us that is so broken? What is it about us that makes us so dysfunctional to where we are like the proverbial stump of a tree? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point, the visible hints of brokenness. Starting in verse 6, it says this. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now from these verses, we see a vision of the animal kingdom that is highly, highly unusual, right? Isaiah is describing a scenario in the animal world that we simply do not see in our observation of the animal world, right? I mean, when was the last time you saw a wolf lying next to a lamb or a leopard lying down next to a goat in peace and serenity? When was the last time you saw a child getting anywhere near a viper's nest, right? We just don't see it. Isaiah is painting a picture for us, a perspective that simply does not exist in creation. It's a very unusual, abnormal view of creation, and yet... Isaiah goes on to say, no. What you think is unusual is actually the usual. What you think is abnormal is what should be the norm. Isaiah is painting a picture for us of how the world should be. See, all the things that we consider natural in today's world, like, for example, animals hunting after one another, killing each other, devouring one another. Isaiah says that is not how God intended creation to be. When we see the animal kingdom with all of its ferociousness, all of its disgusting, gross, violent imagery, Isaiah is saying that is not what it was meant to be. That is not how God intended for the animal kingdoms to treat one another, for the animals to treat one another, and that is not how God intended animals to treat human beings. You see, it's kind of like this situation where you're driving on the highway, and you smell something burning in your car. You hear weird noises coming under the root hood of your car. You see red flashes of light blinking off of your dashboard. When you are witnessing these things, you don't think, oh, you know, just need to fill up on gas, right? No, these are signs, these are hints that something is seriously wrong with the car. And when we see the animal world being the way that it is, that is creation's way of hinting to us that something is seriously wrong with the world that we live in. There's something broken. And when we look at our passage, we see exactly what this brokenness is. Let's go back to that phrase in verse 1 that I brought up, the stump of Jesse. As I said before, 
This is a very unflattering reference to King David. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with who King David was, King David was the second king that Israel ever had, and he was considered one of the greatest king, if not the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was a warrior, a musician, a great administrator, and a great spiritual leader. He is forever immortalized in the Bible with that unique title, a man after God's own heart. This guy was a man of splendor and majesty and grandeur in parts of the Bible. And yet when we read this part of the Bible, when we read Isaiah's description of David, it's almost the complete opposite. Why does Isaiah almost insult this great king by referring to him in this nameless, nebulous, unflattering way as the stump of Jesse? Why does Isaiah refer to him in such an unattractive, disrespectful way? Well, if you ever read 2 Samuel which is the book that chronicles the life of David, you would know that this great king ended his life and ended his career as king as a tragic hero. He had a huge major downfall. He was a man who initially was set apart by God to be a great king, to do great works of justice, to protect the innocent, to help the needs of the poor, and yet he ends up living his life in the end as being a sexual exploit, a conspirator of injustice, and a cold-blooded murderer. In other words, a man who was destined to be great lived his life as a ruthless criminal by living in sin. And the consequences of this was that he ended up becoming a dysfunctional king to where his kingdom ended up becoming a dysfunctional kingdom. And here's what we all need to take away from all this. Isaiah is saying to us in this passage, everything that you can say about David, you can say about all of us. Let me say that again. Isaiah is referencing David to make this point. Everything that you could say about David, every criticism, every judgment that you can throw towards David, you need to throw back upon yourself. Because all of us in here, according to Scripture, we are like David. Every one of us. Because the Bible tells us that when God created man, he created you and me, he created us with the same majestic dignity as David. He created us to be rulers of a realm. He created us to be rulers of creation which involved doing justice, protecting the weak and the innocent, and living a life of integrity and righteousness. Why? Because just like David, God intended every man and woman to be a man and woman after God's own heart. He created us to where, like David, we would live for the glory of God and that we would seek to live for God in such a way that we would want to serve and protect and bless those around us. And this joy and peace that would come out of that kind of relationship with God would overflow in bountiful blessings to those around us. You see, the Bible tells us that when you are walking right with God, that doesn't just bless you. It blesses those around you. It blesses your marriages. It blesses your children. It blesses your workplace. It blesses your city. It blesses your church. It blesses the poor that are living in proximity around you, right? Scripture teaches us that when you are walking with God, there are collateral blessings that flow to those around you. Which means the more a society is walking with God, the more blessing society receives. You know, one of the major scripture passages that we use throughout our community life is the one that's printed in the hallway as you go down the stairs, right? The passage in Proverbs, when the righteous prosper, what happens? The city rejoices. The more you are walking with God, the more those around you are blessed, evidenced by the fact that even creation itself, even the animal kingdom, enjoys that wonderful blessing between you and God. 
to where a wolf will lie down with a lamb, where a cheetah will sit down with a turtle. Was that the animal? No. But you know what I mean, right? (laughs) A cheetah with a turtle. But here's the downfall. Just like David, all of us has had a tragic situation happen to us where we, like David, fell into sin. We have all fallen short to the glory of God, as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short and lived in rebellion against God because we are now dysfunctional human beings, because we are selfish, dysfunctional rulers, and the kingdom that was entrusted to us is now dysfunctional as well. This is why the great Puritan preacher George Whitfield once said these insightful words. He said this, quote, Do you know why the wild animals fear and growl and shriek at you? Because they know that you have a quarrel with their master. Master being God himself. But here's something else that you need to understand. Isaiah goes on to tell us, look, it's not just the animal kingdom and its craziness that is a sign that you have a broken relationship with God. Isaiah goes on to say there's another hint, there's another evidence that you clearly need to see as a powerful indicator that your relationship with God is broken. And that is what? Verse 4. He refers to it. The poor and the needy. The poor and the needy. According to Isaiah, the existence of poverty is proof, is evidence, it's a sign that your relationship with God is utterly broken. You know, in spite of what people say that poverty is simply the natural consequences of living in a free market capitalistic economy, Scripture would say no. When God created humanity, he did not intend for poverty to ever exist. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 15. He says this, speaking through Moses. There should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you will fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. What is God saying? He's saying, look, the more you and the rest of society walk with me, the more you are faithful and obedient to me, the less poverty you will see in society. That is what he's saying. Why? Because, again, when you walk with God, you don't only just get blessed in that relationship. The people around you get blessed. When the righteous prosper, the righteous get blessed? No. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Scripture makes it clear poverty is not in any way the design of God's creation, which means when you see it, that is creation's loudest testimony that you and God are not right with each other, that a society is not right with God. When there is poverty everywhere, where the rich are taking advantage of the poor, where the forgotten are being crushed and oppressed, that is a clear indication that communion with God has been severed and sin has caused its downfall within creation. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Without a loving relationship with God, you are not fully human. If you are not fully human, you cannot function the way a human being functions, which includes caring for those who are poor, caring for those who are defenseless, caring for those who are oppressed. And if you fail to do that thing as you were created to do, society gets more disrupted, families get blown apart, cities become dysfunctional, the world becomes like hell. Now you hear all this and you say, wow, this is just so depressing. 
Is there any hope for humanity that has lost its humanity? Is there any hope for us as a society that has lost its source of making it humane? Isaiah says, yes, there is. And to explain, we go to our final point, the visible reason to hope. Let's read again verse 1. Isaiah says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Here's something that you need to understand about this imagery of the stump that the Bible uses over and over. One of the things that you'll notice is that whenever God wants to show that he is judging an individual or a nation, is that he always uses this imagery of a tree being chopped down. For example, in the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who's considered one of the most vicious kings that ever existed on the earth, he sleeps and dreams of a magnificent tree, a beautiful tree. And God yells for his angel to just violently chop it down. Obviously, it was such a crazy dream that Nebuchadnezzar cannot sleep. He's filled with dread. He's filled with fear. And rightfully so, because later on, the prophet Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and explains what that dream was. Nebuchadnezzar, the tree is you. And God is judging you for your sins to where you will no longer be human anymore. And one of the sins that Daniel isolates as one of the reasons why God judges him is for how Nebuchadnezzar treated the poor, the oppressed, the forgotten. Just read it, Daniel chapter 4, it's all there. Now, when you realize that this reference of a stump indicates judgment and wrath, and when you see Isaiah using this very reference in our passage, you can't help but to wonder Wow, is Isaiah one of those crazy, fanatic, religious cuckoos, you know, on the streets, on college campuses saying, you're going to hell, God hates you, God's going to judge you? No. Because look at what happens as soon as you see this imagery of a stump. What comes out of that stump? A shoot, right? What's a shoot? It's a little twig that comes out of a stump of a tree that if you nourish it enough, will become a full-blown tree, healthy, strong, vibrant again. What is Isaiah saying by using this imagery of a stump in contrast to a branch that is shooting out of that stump? Isaiah is telling us of the gospel. Who is Isaiah talking about here in chapter 11? The shoot. Do you know who he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Why did God the Son incarnate as Jesus Christ where he suffered a tremendous, humiliating life that ultimately ended in his humiliating death on the cross. Did he come to forgive you of your sins? Yes. Did he come to give you eternal life? Yes. But you know what else? He came so that you, who don't function as a human being, would one day function again as a human being. Jesus Christ not only came to give you a worry-free life after you die so that you live forever in heaven, he came so that right here, right now, if you accept him as Lord and Savior, you would no longer be subhuman, you would be human again. Jesus came to change your life here and now. Change you how? To change you from being a selfish, arrogant, pompous person to where you take advantage of other people into becoming a person who is selfless, caring, sheltering, providing, and giving to those who are less fortunate than you. In other words, he came to change you to where you would be more like him again. That you would be what you were created to be. You would be like God. You would be like Jesus Christ. 
You know, when scripture tells us that God created us to be like Jesus, what he's really saying is he created you to be like an image bearer of God because who is the true image bearer of God? It is Jesus. Jesus came not only to make sure that you're taken care of after you die, he came to make sure that you take care of others before you die. He came so that you would no longer be a stump on this earth, useless, pointless, but instead, through the power of his spirit, through the nurturing of the community of the church, you would become like a flourishing tree so that those who need your shade, those who need your protection, those who need your nourishing love, those who need your provision would be blessed because of it. The greatest evidence of the existence of God is not simply God walking around doing miracles visibly. The greatest proof for the existence of God is when God's people fulfilled their original destiny of being more like their God. That is why Jesus came. Yes, he came to forgive you of your sins. Yes, he came to free you of a guilty conscience. Yes, he came to give you eternal life. But he also came so that through you, he would show himself to a world that has forgotten him, a world that believes he is against them. The church does the work of mercy because through that act of mercy, we are saying, yes, God exists. And by observing how we treat the poor and oppressed, you would see the kind of God that he is. He is a God who defends the weak, who remembers the poor, and makes sure that the forgotten are never neglected. Friends, it's because God exists that we do things like that. If God did not exist, that means we have no reason to be like him. And if there's no reason to be like him, that means we would not do any works of mercy. We would never care for the poor. We would never care for the orphan. We would never feed the hungry. We would never shelter the homeless. But because there is a God who is like a flourishing tree, we come and we seek to be like flourishing trees for those around us. Because our God came and he suffered and he died for the penalty of us acting like a stump, selfish, arrogant, pompous, uncaring. He came to take the full punishment of wrath that we deserved so that when God looks upon us, he does not simply see a useless stump. He sees a stump that's being changed that will eventually bring hope, represented through the shoot coming out, his son Jesus working through you. Brothers, this is why we do ministry of mercy. Sisters, this is why we do ministers of mercy. Because we are called to be like our God. Because we are called to show the world who our God is. The God that this world has forgotten. Let's show them again who he is. By the works of mercy he calls us to do. By being the person he called us to be. Let's pray. Father, as we think more about our responsibility in this world, we know that one of the biggest areas of neglect that we have not fulfilled is our call of alleviating the needs of the poor, the forgotten, and the oppressed. Father, in many ways, we are just like a useless stump, good for nothing. And yet, Father, we are so grateful that you did not leave us in that state of dysfunction, 
You did not leave us in that state of condemnation and judgment, but instead you have entered into that state so that we could triumph over this status of death, this status of condemnation, so that we could once again be human. Jesus, you took on the punishment for our sins. You took on the penalty of us refusing to be human by being human for us, by living out the true call of humanity, by doing everything that you've done, by being the very person that you are. Lord, help us to now follow in your footsteps in being like you, in being like our great God and King, so that this world would not be hell, but this world would point to the heaven that is to come. God, I pray for us as a church family that we would truly live out this call of being outwardly compassionate. Father, I pray that all of us would take advantage of our desire to be a blessing to our neighbors, to the poor, to the forgotten. We pray that you would give us that dislocated heart that we need so that we would grieve and mourn into action by seeking to be a source of alleviation and hope to those who feel they have been forgotten by you. Lord, help us to be your faithful ambassadors by the works of mercy you call us to do. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to give God his tithes and our offerings.